As Matt said, my name's Dylan. I am uh, one of the interns here, and I am part of the Ashfield slash Summerhill gospel community. We're a bit we're a bit nomadic at the moment, but we'll find a home soon. So. Uh, we're going to be wrapping up our series this morning uh, together as we've been following the life of Abraham through the book of Genesis. And we're going to be camping out at the last episode that we have of his uh, life in the Bible in Genesis 22. So if you have a Bible or if you have an app and you want to turn there, we'll get there in a minute. If you're new to this Bible thing, um, feel free to Google it or something like that. Uh, just go to the first book and look for the big 22. That'll tell you you're in chapter 22. But I'm going to pray for us before we start and ask for God's help as we seek to understand and love Him more. So if you're the praying type, please pray with me. God, we, God, we thank You that You're a God who reveals Yourself to us. God, we thank You that You have not left us in darkness to guess who You are, but You have gone to great lengths throughout all history to reveal Your character to us, to gather a people for Yourself. And so, God, we pray this morning as each one of us bring in our own baggage, our own stresses, our own anxieties, Father, we ask that you would help us to, in a sense, set them aside to just focus wholly and solely on you. God, show us how you meet our every need. And Father, for me, I just pray that you would help me to be nothing but a mouthpiece for the beautiful name of Jesus. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen. In, um, in 2008, I had just finished my high school HSC year, my year 12. And uh, I got an opportunity to go and do what I think so many boys would dream of doing. I got to go and live in Brazil, play soccer in the motherland of soccer in the hope of, of a lifelong dream I had of being a professional soccer player. And the opportunity came up quick. I took it quick. I had no idea that they spoke Portuguese, not Spanish, until I asked someone. So I was learning to count in Portuguese on the plane ride over there. I was kind of a think first, uh, do it first and just think later. And I hit the ground and, and we started playing straight away. I was in an apartment. Um, I was training twice a day, enjoying life, living with um, some people over there, but whilst I was enjoying it, after about a month, I started to get really homesick. Um, I started to miss family, I started to miss friends, I started to miss like stuff that I did not expect to miss. I couldn't find Cocoa Pops anywhere. I missed Cocoa Pops for breakfast, I missed mowing the lawn, I missed doing chores at home, that was weird for me. But I realize now as I look back in that moment, I was actually being tested how much I was willing to sacrifice to go after this goal that I had, this lifelong dream. How much did I value that? Was I willing to sacrifice family? Was I willing to sacrifice friends? Was I willing to sacrifice just not living in a culture that was familiar to me? a language that I could speak, I started to feel lonely. I started to miss, like I said, those mundane things that I didn't expect to miss. I was being tested how much I was actually 
uh, valuing that goal that I thought I had by what I was willing to sacrifice in order to get it. And so that's, that's, that's how testing works. Testing examines how much you value something by what you're willing to sacrifice or forego in order to get it. You were tested this morning. Some of you would have loved to sleep in, enjoy maybe that second cup of coffee, but you chose to, to sacrifice those things because you value being here at this gathering in, uh, this morning. It can happen in mundane things like that. It can happen in big moments in your life. If God has asked you to walk through some things where you just think you're not necessarily capable of it and you're being tested, how much do you value God in that moment? And God uses that, that principle of, of testing to see how much we value Him, how much we value our faith. And we automatically think of testing as a bad thing. I have never heard a high school student or a uni student walk into a room and say, I thank my Lord for this math test. I have just been looking forward to this whole time. I've never seen that happen. It produces anxiety. It produces all this sort of stuff. So we can think of testing as a naturally sort of bad thing. But God can use it as a good thing to examine where we stand with Him. How much do we actually value Him? And I think probably some of the hardest uh, testing that we go through is, is suffering that's inflicted upon us. Where we, God has asked us to journey through that immense suffering, grieving loss, constant sickness, terminal illness. And the temptation at that point is to, is to go, but how, how can God be real if that happens? How can God be, be really there if he's asked us to do that? And the temptation can sometimes just be to outright reject God because of that. But that's not the next step of suffering. If we have been asked to go through something like that, the, the, the logical conclusion is not that God is not there. It's that it prompts you to think he's doing a bad job. It's, it's prompting you to go... This is so different. I've got a picture of who God is, who he tells me he is, who Christians harp on about who he is. He is good. He is faithful. He is loving. He is all those things. But my reality is so different. It prompts this question that we've been asking this whole way through this series. How do we live in this gap between God's promise and the reality that we're living in? How do, how do we have faith in God that He is good, that He will deliver on His promises when our reality just seems so counter to that? And it's a question that this passage in Genesis 22 asks and answers. And if, if you've been journeying with us through this whole Wanderer series, you'll know that, that God, way back a few chapters earlier in Genesis, just went to this, by all accounts, random Iraqi dude and said, I'm going to make some promises to you. I'm going to make a nation out of you. I'm going to make your name famous. I'm going to, through you, bless the whole world, through your family line. I am going to bless the whole world. And 
over, over the whole series, we've seen that Abraham kind of stumbles and bumbles his way through following God. And, and he and his wife, Sarah, uh, show so many moments of faithlessness, but God is faithful to them, guiding them, strengthening them the whole way. When Abraham fears that he won't be protected by God, he effectively pimps out his wife so that he would feel protected, so that he wouldn't have to go through hardship, but God is still faithful to him. When Sarah thinks that this promise of a child is going too slow, she pimps out her husband and says, just go, just go sort it out essentially with one of the slaves because the promises of God are too slow. And then that, that comes to, to Genesis 21, the chapter that we were before our chapter this morning. And Isaac is born, this child that we've been waiting for, for half a century almost. They've been waiting for this child. And God is faithful and delivers in the most miraculous circumstances where, where Sarah is, is effectively like a nanny. Old enough to be a great granny. She's nearly 100. And God says, I'm going to bless you with the son that you've been waiting for. And so you could imagine at their, their mindset at this time. They're thinking, I'm, my dance with the divine is done, right? I am settling down. I have walked for years, wandered for years. God has been faithful to his promises. We have seen how he's faithful. I'm just going to camp out and watch the promises of God unfold through this son that I now have. And that's exactly what they do. At the end of 21, Abraham plants a tree. Right? You don't plant a tree if you're on a six-month lease. He's planning on camping out. He is ready to settle down. And then Genesis 22 happens. Genesis 22, verse 1 says this, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. What? And what's your first reaction to that? Mine would be if I'm Abraham. Are you kidding me? This, this is the son that you promised. This is the fulfillment of your promise that we've been waiting for. And now you want me to kill him? Are you kidding me? And take, take away the, the theological aspect of it for a moment. Abraham and Sarah must be thinking, that's my boy. That's my child. And you want me to kill him? Are you kidding me? I mean, I don't, I don't have kids, so I can't relate firsthand experience to something like this. And I know your parents here would be just thinking of the horror of being asked to do something like that by God. So I don't have firsthand experience, but I do have secondhand experience. And it tells me that it's not much better than firsthand experience. The pain in a father's eyes as he spreads the ashes of his 30-year-old son who drank himself into an early grave. The mother who cannot walk into her son's room 
because five years earlier she put him in the ground. I mean, the empty gaze in a parent's eyes when they have gone through something like that, it is not an acute pain that you can just compartmentalize to one area of your life. But everything seems duller after that. Everything seems less joyous. It is a pain that I would not wish on my worst enemy. And so you could imagine if Abraham's being asked to do that, that the response is, no, I'm not doing it. You can't ask me to do something like that. But that's not his response. In verse 3, Genesis 22, it says, So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. If you're you're Isaac at this point, right? Your dad is like a hundred, okay? You're a teenager. Even if you are going through that feeble stage that teenage boys go through, you've got some muscle on your dad. So you'd be thinking, well, I'd be thinking, I'm going to kick my dad's butt and run. Good prank, dad, but enough is enough. Like this has gone too far. But he doesn't. There's no sign of a struggle. He completely trusts his dad, and submits to what he would want. No sign of a struggle. And literally, thank God for verse 11. Because verse 11 says, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring Shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice? 
So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. There is so much in this passage that just seems foreign to our 21st century modern sensibilities. So many hard things to comprehend. And so I just, I just for a moment, just want to maybe address some, some elephants in the room when you read a passage like this. The first is, not many people have a similar relationship to God that Abraham does. I mean, this is not Abraham going, I think God is telling me to do this. This is the audible voice of God telling Abraham to go ahead and do this. So anyone, as has been done, anyone who uses a passage like this to justify such a heinous thing as killing a child has completely missed the point of what's going on here. And that leads me to the second elephant. It might seem obvious to some, but it's worth saying. God will not ask you to sacrifice your children. God will never ask you to sacrifice a family member like this. And I know that because he doesn't get Abraham to do it. He stops him. And chapters later, a few chapters later, God would say that child sacrifice is detestable to me. I hate it. He judges whole nations because they think they're worshipping their false gods by offering their infants as a sacrifice. He says it's detestable to me. And even this, this sacrificial system of bulls and goats and pigeons and all this sort of stuff that, that runs through the whole Old Testament, even that, God would later say, I do not delight in the blood of bulls and goats and those things. And the reason why he doesn't is because they don't really pay for anything. They don't really accomplish anything. I mean, we, we have, well, definitely I have, trouble with the idea of this gruesome sacrifice of an animal for sin, which is what seems to run all throughout the Bible, all throughout the Old Testament. And it just seems so foreign to us, you know, foreign to me. But at the heart of the idea of sacrifice, at the heart of the idea of a blood offering, is the same principle of justice that we use today. If you break it, you buy it. If you break it, you pay for it. As um. As a part of my job, I have to go into hardware stores quite a bit. There's Mitre 10, Bunnings, all this sort of stuff. And by far the most frustrating yet the most hilarious day to go on is Saturday. Because when you walk into Bunnings, you realise that all the families have come with their kids. It's a day out, they're renovating, they're doing the yard, they're doing something like this. And it's like kids walk past the sausage sizzle, they don't even need to eat one. But they walk past it, they, they smell that, they smell the sugar from the, from the cans of soft drink, they walk in the store and they go mental. It is 
Hilarious to watch. I mean, I feel for you parents if you're in there and you're racing around behind your kids trying to tell them to, to stop doing stuff. It's, I mean, there's kids grabbing chainsaws, smacking them on the ground. There's lawnmowers just getting pushed into elderly couples' ankles and you know, hammers in the light section being swung around like this. It's, I mean, it's chaos. I feel for you. I mean, Lord, help a family of four if they walk into there. There's just too many little hands going. Right? But the reason why, if you're a parent and you're walking behind your kid trying to stop them from doing all this stuff, is because you know if they break it, you've got to pay for it. And it can be an expensive outing. If they break a chainsaw, you have to pay the two, $300. If they break light globes, you have to pay whatever it costs. That is the, the principle of justice that, that governs so much of what we do. But my question to you is, What's the price? What do you pay when you break something perfect? What do you pay when you break something perfect? See, with a, with a, with a chainsaw or a light globe, it's, it's easy. I see the value of it and I sacrifice that money in order to pay for it. But what do you pay when you break something perfect? Because if you zoom back to Genesis 1... Zoom back to God creating. And he says, it is good. Not just top quality, top notch. It is perfect. His creation is in perfect harmony with what he desires. He creates you and me, men and women, made in the image of God, perfect for a relationship with him, harmonious. And the bad news of the gospel, the bad news of the gospel is that you and I, on the daily, do things to disrupt and break that perfect harmony that God has produced. And you might be sitting there like I often do and think that, hey, I'm not as bad as that guy or that girl over there, and that may be true. But we have no control over when we break something, the effect it actually has. Think of the offhand comment that you could have made. Back in high school, calling someone fat and how that has shaped the last 10 years of their life. How many times have you said something in anger that has just produced an anxiety in someone else that they have not recovered from? We break things on the daily in God's good creation. And maybe you're here this morning and you've experienced someone breaking you. Maybe you've experienced your decisions breaking you. And the thing is, what is the cost of that? What is the payment for that? The reason, why, the reason why God doesn't get Abraham to go through with his sacrifice because it doesn't actually accomplish anything. It won't pay for anything. You need a perfect payment for that. In step Jesus, thousands of years after this, who would come in, live that sinless life, would be without fault, and yet would willingly offer himself as a sacrifice for you and for me, as a perfect payment for you and for me. And the reason why I know that Jesus is the Jesus is the real hero of this story is because the, the echoes, the similarities between the story of, of Isaac and what happens with him and Jesus is enormous. Both of them are people who fulfill long-awaited promises. Both of them are immensely loved by their father. Both of them trust their father completely. Both of them have to go up to a mountain to where they're going to be executed. Both of them carry the wood on which they will be executed. Both of them are said 
to be brought back to life, although Isaac is brought back figuratively. The only difference is one was spared and one wasn't. The only difference, one was slayed and one wasn't. God has not asked Abraham to do something that he himself was not willing to do for you and for me. God is, has, has invited Abraham and said, Abraham, come. See what redemption is from my point of view. See what redemption will cost me. See how, like the parent who scatters the ashes of, her, of his 30-year-old son, see the pain he feels. That is what I will bring upon myself to redeem a people for me. Like the mother who cannot walk in to her son's room. That is the pain that God in Jesus will feel as that separation on the cross. He's saying to Abraham, come, see what it will cost me from my point of view. See what redemption actually looks like. I mean, can you even begin to fathom the depths of God's love for you that he would do that in Jesus for you? Can you even begin to plumb the depths of God's riches of his kindness that Jesus would willingly offer himself up as a perfect payment for your sins and for mine. Is that not a God worthy of our faith? Is that not a God worthy of trusting completely that he would do that for you? I mean, God has not stood idly by at suffering and said, just deal with it, humans. Come on. Philippians says that Jesus though being like God, equal with God, did not consider it something to be grasped at, held on to, but rather he empties himself and enters into the suffering of humanity to experience it like us, but to accomplish something greater. But the question still stands, I think, because we can know all that. We can hear all that and think, yeah, I hear all the time, God is good. God delivers on his promises. He is faithful. But my reality looks so different. How do I live in this gap between God's promise and the reality? Because it doesn't match up at the moment. And so I just want to I want to offer three things in closing in closing of, of how do we live in the gap between God's promise and the reality. And the first thing is, acknowledge his past performance. Acknowledge God's past performance. I mean, for, for Abraham, Abraham is, is later said that he is the father of faith, right? He is the father of those who have faith. But he's not the father of those who have blind faith. Okay, like when you, when you walked into church this morning, check your brain at the door, no thinking required. He is not the father of blind faith, but rather he has seen God deliver on promise after promise. He has seen God's provision and protection at every step of his life so that when God steps in and asks him to do something that seems just so amazingly against what he's experienced, he knows that somehow, some way, God will work it out for his good. 
He has seen how he's done that time and time again. And for you and I, who live this side of Jesus, we can look back and see how God has provided time and time again on his promises. The promise for a king who will rule in righteousness and justice is found in Jesus. The promise of a a prophet who would speak for God perfectly is found in God in the flesh, in the person of Jesus. This this saviour who has been long awaited, who would take upon himself the burdens of humanity, the sin of humanity is found in Jesus. We have seen God be faithful to his promises time and time again. We can look back and see that. So when our reality doesn't feel like it measures up, we can see that God has been good in the past. God has been faithful. I mean, maybe not not just in that that long-span theological sense, but if you've, ever, if you've ever chatted with someone who's been journeying with Jesus a long time and you've asked them their story, you'll hear them talk about times where they doubted, they were tested. And yet they can look back now at God's past performance and see how God was using that for their good. Acknowledge God's past performance. And the second thing is, know his promises about your present. Know his promises about your present circumstances. Abraham gets promised a nation. God says, I will make a nation out of you. But Abraham's question to God is not, where's this nation? Where's all the people you said that would come from me? He knows that that's for the future. But his question is, how are you going to accomplish that? Because I haven't seen your promise for the the now. And so Abraham knows that Isaac is the fulfillment of God's promise for now. So much so that Hebrews later in the Bible would say that even if Abraham had to go through with sacrificing his son, he had resolved that God would raise him from the dead. Because so assured was he that Isaac was part of the specific promise for now. I think you and I, we we, we often get ourselves into trouble when we confuse good things with God's promises. Good things with God's promises for the here and now. And you, you, you see it all the time. I've done it as well. Photos on social media with a coffee, sun rising, sun setting, or beer, hashtag blessed. You know, that sort of thing. Like, I don't want to deny those things. They're good things. But God hasn't promised those things. God hasn't promised you health, wealth, and prosperity. And so you cannot claim a promise from God that he has not given. He has not promised you complete freedom from the influence of sin. He has promised you he can give you victory by the power of his spirit over it. He has not promised everyone healing, though it is a good thing to seek after from sickness, from terminal illness, from anxiety, depression, mental illness. He has not promised deliverance from those things, but he has said, I will be with you. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Know God's promise about your present day circumstances. And the last thing, the third thing of of how do we live in the gap between God's promise and reality. The third thing is long for his promises about your future. Long for God's promises about your future. 
what does is, what is Abraham say constantly throughout this passage? God will provide. God will see to it, literally, in the future. I, I know my promises for the here and now with Isaac. But I long to see this nation. And I know God will accomplish it. I, um, there's, a, there's a couple that uh, have been a, a long-standing part of, of my life. And um, they're an amazing couple. They're an elderly couple. And they have been through more suffering than I care to know. Not just more suffering, but more testing by God. They have dealt with the financial sacrifice of going into full-time ministry at a very young age so that they have never owned virtually anything. They have dealt with relationship breakdown amongst their family, amongst their peers, and they have been continuing to walk with God through it. They have dealt with sickness for years and years and years, operation after operation, organ failure after organ failure, and yet they continue to walk through it. They have been an amazing part of my life that they still have time to encourage me, encourage my wife. They are truly an amazing couple. But the thing that I've learned most from them the thing that I value most in them and I can see in their life is that so assured of the promises of God for their future are they that nothing that comes in their path in the present can sway them from their God. When they deal with sickness, they know that in the future they have been promised an inheritance by God where He will wipe away every single tear, every bloodstained shirt, where no sickness will plague anyone they know that when they struggle with sin, they, they, they can look to a future where God has promised them that He will give them deliverance from that, complete freedom from any influence from that. When they mourn the, the loss of loved ones, when they see death rampant around them, they know that they have a future that Jesus has promised them where they will not deal with that. There will be no death. There will be no decay. So assured are they of the future promises of God. So sweet are those promises to them that they cannot be swayed by anything in the present. That they cannot be swayed by the suffering and the testing and the financial hardship that comes their way in so many different forms. That is an exemplary faith. I mean, can you imagine, church, if, if we all had that kind of faith? Can you imagine the impact we would have for a watching world that is longing for more? That though comfortable, sees a need for something greater where death still plagues us, sickness still haunts us, mental illness still follows us daily around and they are seeking for something more. Could you imagine the impact that we would have if we had that sort of faith that said that the sweetness of the promises of God for my future are so incredibly generous, are so incredible to me that nothing that comes my way can sway me from my God. That is the type of faith that Abraham has. That is the type of faith that we long for. And that is the type of faith that God, through testing, will mold into your life. That is the work, the beautiful work 
that He has begun or wants to begin in you. God, we, we thank You that You are faithful. God, we praise You that the work that You have begun in so many of us and want to begin in some of us, God, we just thank You that that is a glorious work, that You are moulding faith in each one of us. And God, we pray that You would help us to see how You are good, how You have been with us in the past and how You will continue to be with us. God, let us be people who long for your promises of the future. Let us be people who strive after them with a holy angst and declare to a world that you are so good, that you are so faithful, your promises so sweet, that they are worth everything you ask us to go through. And it's in Jesus' beautiful name I pray. Amen.